Hi, this is Sarah. If you like this episode of Let's Talk About Sects, you can listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. The audiobook will be available on Audible, Apple Books, Google, and Kobo from the 28th of June. A link is in the show notes. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. I'm pleased to welcome Audio Technica back as presenting partner for season 4 of Let's Talk About Sects. Their support has meant a lot, and their equipment is a huge reason why the show sounds great. Right now, I'm recording on an AT4050, which I was very excited to receive at the end of last year. Be sure to check out Audio Technica's Creator Pack if you're looking at content creation yourself, and if you're not a producer, get onto their home audio setups to get your home entertainment on point. Find out more at audio-technica.com.au. Violet Pryor told her followers that she was God. They gave up their money and possessions to keep her in comfort. David Aliff became one of her key pillars, a right-hand man. After her death, he became the leader of the cult that she had created in Sydney, Australia, the Zion Full Salvation Ministry. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we continue, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing related to emotional abuse and controlling behaviours. This episode also includes mentions of suicide. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. Violet Pryor died in 1991, having led the Zion Full Salvation Ministry in Sydney, Australia since 1977. It's quite difficult to find out much about Violet Pryor's life before she got to Sydney, though David Aliff's brother John did some research when he first saw he was losing his sibling to Violet's spell. John and David wrote a book together called My Brother's Eyes, and in it John recounts discovering how Violet once held meetings in her home and was known to the local kids as a witch, then was ousted from her church in Leeton in the Riverina area of country New South Wales. That church hadn't accepted Violet's claims of spiritual gifts and being a unique messenger of God. 
Violet told David Ayliff she'd been brought up in a strict Methodist family with three siblings and that she had wished she'd been born a boy. She said that she married a man named Alan Pryor and worked jobs in the office of the cannery and doing the books for the local cinema. Victoria's Sunshine Advocate newspaper has a marriage write-up from the 25th of February 1944, recounting Violet and Alan's wedding on the 19th of that month. The article says that Two sisters of the bride accompanied her as bridesmaid and matron of honour, Miss Daisy Wills in lemon and Mrs May Taylor in blue organdy over satin trimmed with lace, full skirts matching tulle veil with halo of delphinium and gladioli. Apparently the groom's parents couldn't make the wedding due to transport issues from Broken Hill. Violet said that she'd had to work the two jobs while caring for Alan as he succumbed to lung cancer. She said that the two of them would have had a son together, but he was stillborn. She'd first experienced the presence of God right there in her bedroom with her while she was grieving for her husband. David Ayliff spoke with me for this episode. Here are some of his recollections. She would talk about her family upbringing and, you know, her her grandfather was a, an itinerant Methodist preacher who used to apparently ride from one place to another to preach services and all this sort of thing. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of the Trump era, which has just passed, because I saw so much of Violet Pryor in Donald Trump. Um, and I've always, ever since I've been through that experience, I can see through people who are ab- abject liars, who um, are telling you something with authority or whatever, but you know that it's a, it's a downright lie. Um, she used to talk about, Violet used to talk about um, such things as um, um, her music studies. She, if, if you listen to her, she'd probably studied um, music as much as Joan Sutherland, <laughs> you know, um, and she just missed out on a career in music because of this fact or another. In fact, um, I would be surprised if she had done, you know, the equivalent of fifth form music. Um, she really, she, she knew a bit about music, but not enough, just enough to be dangerous. Um, accounting, she was supposed to be brilliant about accounting. You know, she, all, she had a degree in accounting. Well, she'd never studied for a degree anywhere. So there's all these things that, that, that continued to build up that character. David tells me that Violet was born Violet Dorothy Wills and that she claimed to have ancestry to the explorer William John Wills, who, with Robert O'Hara Burke, died in June 1861 when their attempt to journey 3,250 kilometres from Melbourne to the Gulf of Carpentaria went horribly wrong. You may know them as Burke and Wills. While she was getting the local Baptist elders offside at Leeton with her messages from God, Violet was booked in to attend a Pentecostal seminar in Wagga Wagga. It was here that she met the Reverend Peter Hobson, who was taken with her claims and convinced her to join him in Sydney, where he ministered at St Michael's Church in Surrey Hills. Violet said that on the 18th of November 1974, she experienced Christ's crucifixion alongside him, enduring the entirety of his suffering, and from that date, she exhibited the stigmata. David Ayliff had graduated from high school to a quick rise in journalism, mentored by a man named Doug Walker. 
When Doug became editor-in-chief to a number of local newspapers in Brisbane, he offered David a role up in Queensland. A religious colleague there encouraged David's recommitment to Jesus, and he was baptised in the Holy Spirit at a city Pentecostal church. Following this, in 1974, David felt that God was calling him back to Sydney. On his return, David found work writing for Southern Cross magazine, the publication of the Sydney Anglican Archdiocese. For an article, he met the rector of St Michael's, Peter Hobson. I read in the papers and heard about a deliverance and healing ministry, which is exorcism, um, that was being practised at St Michael's um, Anglican Church in Surrey Hills. Of course, the the hierarchy of the church didn't like this at all because it was really um, uh, contrary to how they operated and what they believed. Um, But, you know, I I was a young journalist and to me this was fascinating. So I went up to made an appointment and went up to um, to interview the the vicar or the rector, they call them in Sydney, um, and uh, saw a deliverance. And uh, there was a woman, blonde-haired woman, um, highly coiffured, um, in brightly coloured clothing, and there she was shouting um, in the ear of this woman, uh, casting uh, demons out of her. And, you know, I... I couldn't believe what I was seeing, but it it just it just seemed to be very very real, and um, and so then later on I got to know that that woman, her name was Violet Pryor, um, got to know the minister of the church more closely, and and sort of got caught up there, and just sort of felt well, oh, this is where I'm supposed to be, and uh, this is real. What I'm seeing is real, um, so I, I was sucked in. David was just nineteen at the time. In his book, David describes his first sighting of Violet Pryor. Quote, I see a small, round, blonde woman of middle age and the certain flashiness that comes from terrylene and cheap jewellery. She is a brassy woman. Her coiffure shines in the dim light. Come out in the name of Jesus, you vile demon, she yells. David watched on as the woman, who was the subject of the exorcism, proceeded to vomit for minutes on end. David writes, I can't control my shaking. I've never seen anything like this. It is unimaginable to me that a scene like this could take place outside of the safe passage of the Bible. Although I am still afraid, all I can think of is, if God is real, he is here and he is bigger than all of us. Then I heard the story of the woman who'd been um, exorcised and she talked about having been a prostitute and being on the streets and you know, life being pretty terrible for her and blah, blah, blah. And and this had, uh, you know, changed her life. So, you know, all these things added together and you think, uh, you think you're on a winner. <laughs> the Southern Cross magazine edited David's resulting article about St Michael's so that any supportive references to the idea of exorcism were removed. David soon got to speak with Violet Pry in person. When I did get to meet her and sit down and talk with her and so on, um, the curious thing about her was that uh, she spoke with such authority. I mean, um, there was no sense of, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian and, and I'm following Jesus and this is what I think he says and this is, you know, none of that. It was as if she was talking about um, an intimate acquaintance and she, everything she said about Christ, about 
the world we lived in, about, you know, things that people suffered or experienced. She seemed to speak as if she really knew um, and had, you know, incredible authority. That was really striking. And uh, I remember the contrast that I felt compared to with other people that I'd met and along the way, you know. Um, so that that really got me in. Um, yeah, she was just very different, but very, very, um, very authoritative, I'd have to say that. I mean, charismatic is a very good word. She was certainly very charismatic. So we're talking about a woman at that time who would have been, oh, for early 50s, uh, maybe 52 when I met her. Um, she was a widow. Um, but, yeah, and, and she was very personable. So she'd look directly into your eyes and, uh, you know, acted as if she was really, really concerned about you. <laughs> you were the most important person um, that she'd met ever. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, uh, very uh, overpowering. She claimed to have the stigmata, and that was that's uh, the you know the nail prints in her hands and feet of the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, but she not only claimed that. She claimed, <laughs> again, I'm thinking of Trump, you know, she, she, she claimed the best stigmata of all, <laughs> the very best. And, and that was that she had all the marks. So she had the crown of thorns and she had the, the spear thrust in the side and all this sort of thing. And she would boast about it, um, you know, that, that set her apart so much from any other human being. Because when you look in the encyclopedias and so on, I, at the time I did that, and there was probably some 300 different people who claimed to have the stigmata. But normally it was, you know, only the hands or only the feet or, you know, whatever. But, but she had the whole dang lock. <laughs> As David started to spend more time with Peter Hobson and Violet Pryor, Violet was learning that through her stigmata, she could tell truth from lies. Peter told David that Violet experienced ongoing pain from her wounds. David was designated as one of Violet's pillars at this point, short for a pillar in the temple of God, and in that capacity would take turns watching over Violet when she was suffering for others. He watched over her as she writhed in apparent agony in the St Michael's Church, and it brought him to tears. David wrote, it is such a living example of the love of God that he would continue to suffer for the sins of the world through his servant. It confirms for me the importance of Violet in God's end-time plans and the honour I have in serving her. Surely there will be no sacrifice too high for me to pay for this privilege. Nothing else matters. By 1975, the Anglican Archbishop had written to Peter Hobson advising him against using the church property for exorcisms and by 1977, the Archdiocese was withholding church funds from St Michael's. This is the year that Violet and her followers broke from the church and formed the Zion Full Salvation Ministry. Early on in his involvement with Violet, David met a young woman and the two fell in love. When the woman's family started questioning some of Violet's claims, she was more open to their perspective than David was to his family's. David was a true believer. 
Violet told him that God's message was he needed to break things off, and so he did. This was a heartbreaking experience, of course, but David's future wife Margaret soon joined the ministry, and this year they'll celebrate 45 years of marriage. She was a young nurse. She was um, studying at uh, what was called Crown Street Women's Hospital, which doesn't exist anymore. And she was, she'd, she'd grown up in, you know, parents were Methodists and uh, regular, you know, church was part of their lives. So she was looking for a welcoming church and she'd been to a couple and been really um, hurt by the lack of welcome that she experienced. Um, and she was lonely. So she came up to this church and, uh, you know, for, for a normal service, which wasn't a healing and deliverance service. Um, and, uh, and she was just blown away by the love and welcome that she felt from people within the church. And I think that was genuine. I don't, I, um, that's not, you know, th- these people were, you know, they were wonderful people in this group, um, as, as they are in most um, cultic groups, you know, I think. Um, and, and so that, that was what drew her in. Uh, she did. Uh, I mean, I, I used. I was young, but I used to preach and and lead services and so on. And uh, and she looked at me and thought I would be probably married with kids. So then <laughs> she found out that I wasn't. <laughs> the wonderful, welcoming community that Margaret found in the Zion Full Salvation Ministry was a varied group of people. Uh, it was always fairly small, and and I. And I would probably say, you know, between 70 and 100 people. Um, you know, it, 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 it never really grew much more than that. Um, there were times when there would be people just coming for the ministry of deliverance and healing or exorcism, and they never joined um, the group. But, you know, there were all kinds of people who would come. There were, there were nuns from, from different areas. There were... Um, priests from other churches, um, um, and there were individuals, and and they would come for this this you know healing treatment, um, and uh, and then they would go, but there were there was a sort of core of people who sort of joined it and and stayed with it. Um, the demographic of those people would probably be, I'd say, the, the, around middle class. Um, not that we talk about class systems much, but I suppose it does explain um, incomes and so on. The people who who had um, stable jobs on the on the most part, um, and uh, you know they were, uh, I guess, um, middle of the road type people. You know they weren't uh, they weren't real uh, lefties. They weren't real conservatives. But um, you know, I, uh, yeah, and and the age demographic would have been, I was one of the youngest to join at 19, and then I met my wife about a year or so later, a couple of years later, um, and she's the same age as me. But there are people who who joined it who were, what, in their 30s, their 40s, in their 50s, um, and, uh, and you know, early 60s. So it, it, it covered a wide field. <laughs> Violet approved of Margaret and advised David to consider marriage very early on. She also told him it was time for him to leave his magazine job and join the ministry full-time on a small stipend. David understood that he would have to give everything over to the ministry, even though the stipend wouldn't be enough to live on. From his book, quote, 
When Dad gives me $1,000 to help out, I use it to pay outstanding bills, and with $200 left over, buy a simple diamond engagement ring for Margaret. Later, when Margaret receives $7,700 from an inheritance, she gives $7,000 to the ministry and uses $700 to pay bills that we couldn't meet. And so we lived, struggling as the Lord provided. I think the first year of our marriage was very hard on her because she didn't quite realise how much I in demand I was. And um, when we, we, we moved into a flat that we rented and she insisted that we'd not have a phone to start with. So she must have suspected something. But, uh, but then we got one. And, uh, and, and yes, she, she, she uh, unfortunately had to learn that, um, you know, uh, I, was, I was very much in demand by this strange old woman. Um, a couple of us were paid a stipend for uh, working full-time for the ministry, which was full-time for her. Um, and, and, you know, you weren't, to, you weren't to save money. You weren't to, you know, you had to be totally dependent, really, on her. So um, my wife used to go out uh, shopping and she'd always bought second-hand clothes for the kids and, um, you know, always looking for bargains. Um, yeah, we, uh, we, we actually were paid a stipend that was less than the dole at the time. In case the stigmata wasn't quite enough to captivate her followers, Violet made some further claims. Um, she was in a car accident. Uh, a friend of ours was driving the car. They collided with a tree. It was moving faster than they were. No, no. Um, and, uh, and Violet would claim that she had um, all these horrendous injuries, the best injuries ever. <laughs> and uh, again, um, you know, the, the, the doctors were just astounded. And then she got up after three days and left the hospital. <laughs> so, um, and she would then went on to say that, you know, she believed, she, she claimed that the Holy Spirit had taken possession of her in a way that had never happened with another human being. Um, and then it was, you know, the, the person of Jesus was fully embodied in her. And then finally it was, um, it was the Father as well. So the whole Trinity was in her body. She was God. Violet said that she had literally died and come back to life. Creating music was a big part of the Zion Full Salvation Ministry, and as someone who loved music, this was something that kept David going. The ministry first rented an office space in St Leonard's and then in Crow's Nest, which are both suburbs of Sydney's Lower North Shore. They never sought any council permissions for their operations. The noise used to go out onto the streets on a Friday night and on a Wednesday night and on a Sunday, and I'm... <laughs> astounded that, that there was never a knock on the door from the police. Violet had um, huge speakers, so it was like a rock concert without any rock. <laughs> the whole area of the church, in inverted commas, was set up with um, um, Siebel chairs 
and um, um, it was all carpeted, had these massive speakers, a big equaliser that somebody was operating for the whole time. Violet would be sitting at a round table at the front and there would be people singing, um, and I was one of those, at microphones and somebody playing an organ. There were people on guitars and drums and all the rest of it. David's wife Margaret told the ABC's Compass program in 2012, quote, We'd start off at 5 o'clock and we would sing from maybe 5.30 through to 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning. You can get a high from praising God. It's a different sort of high, but it is a euphoria. Violet had instructed us when we went out on our own, when we left um, St. Michael's, Surrey Hills, that uh, the Father, being God, had instructed that we were not to take any music or any um, anything from the churches because the churches, all of them, were um, deceived and, uh, you know, uh, doing the devil's work. So th- no music. And what people started to do was to write their own music. And so we had this huge amount of original songs. It was, it was quite phenomenal. Um, and I, it was one thing that for many years I struggled with because I'd think, if this is not of God, where does all this music come from? And of course, I came to the realization many years later that, um, you know, you put a, a group of people on an island and you deny them uh, music, culture, um, art, um, you know, theater, whatever, and we create it because these are things that we need. Um, and so, and I, at the time, I was probably one of the most, well, I was, I was the most prolific um, writing music. And um, I used to be submitting to her, you know, 20 and 30 songs a week uh, at, at one period. So my life was taken up with um, writing music, trying to be a father to three little kids and a husband to my wife, uh, being on call 24 hours a day, so that if Violet wanted to ring me at any time of the day or night, I was expected to be at the end of the phone. And of course, that was a time when you didn't have mobile phones. And if you'd taken too long to answer the phone, there was something wrong with you spiritually. You know, um, So, yeah, life was pretty tough back then. David and Margaret named their first child, and through Violet, God named the next two. The man who had brought David to Violet originally, the Reverend Peter Hobson, was not long for the new ministry himself. It seems that Peter found it too difficult to accept a woman having greater authority than him, and so Violet ousted him. If anybody left the ministry, uh, for example, the, uh, the pastor of the Anglican Church um, was, was removed, not for any good reason, but uh, on a whim, um, a, a couple of years later by Violet, um, probably because he was a threat to her. Um, he and his wife lived in the same suburb as we did. And if they were on the street shopping or anything like that, mo- most of the group within the church would cross the road so as not to face them. Um, because they were, having left, they were on the devil's side. David tells me that not long after leaving, Peter's wife Verley claimed to have the stigmata herself. 
Verley still hosts a website today under the name Full Salvation Fellowship, which was run by she and Peter until he passed away recently. Peter authored a number of books under titles like We All Have Our Demons, and Verley continues to preach about demons and exorcism. The first mention on their homepage is a monthly radio show on something called the Omega Man Internet Radio Station, and if you follow that through to its online presence, you'll find an image of a man in aviators holding a sword that says Jesus Christ is Lord, and a gold cage with a demon inside. It says the station has been banned by YouTube and MailChimp after 10 years on those platforms, and also has links under important news through to the Plandemic video series, which... If you haven't had the misfortune to hear about from estranged relatives in your social media DMs, I recommend you continue to avoid. David's wife Margaret discovered a mole growing on the back of her leg when she was in her early 30s and became very concerned when it started to turn black. Violet forbade her from seeing a doctor about it, and gave her instructions with home remedies, telling her it was all God's will. Two years later, when Violet had a moment of weakness and relented, Margaret managed to visit a shocked cancer specialist who had it removed within a week. The wound required a 5 by 7 inch skin graft, and Margaret, not yet knowing if she would live or die, wasn't allowed to tell her family until months later. David recalled a horrifying case of another follower who was instructed not to get treatment for her cancer diagnosis. You know, there was a, a, <clears throat> a woman who, who was dying of cancer and she, was, um, and she wasn't to tell her family. And so her sons and her, her ex-husband only discovered, you know, when she was in the final stages... And that was terribly, terribly cruel um, because they didn't get a chance to talk to her when she was, you know, able to talk properly. Violet would play different mind games with her followers. David gives an example in his book of Violet instructing him and another man to eat their lunch in the assembly hall in front of her as punishment for some kind of misdemeanour, then berating them for failing her test by participating in the blasphemous picnic a young woman with a child whose husband, she was pretty much told to leave her husband because her husband was questioning Violet um, as to, you know, who she was claiming to be and all that sort of thing. And so um, Violet, fearing that the husband was going to cause damage, instructed the woman not only to leave him, but to leave the, the church. So she lived in isolation for quite a long period of time. And she used to write these letters. It was, it was so absurd. Um, she, she got a, a, a post box at a, a um, Chatswood post office in Sydney. And uh, a couple of us would go there and open the post box and get the letters out. And um, they would be taken to Violet and she'd write these wonderful, wonderful letters and send beautiful music that she'd written. Um, and eventually, you know, something turned out really good for her because she was renting a room uh, in a man's house and they fell in love. They married. And, um, and I, I, as I understand, I think it was a very successful, beautiful marriage. 
But you know, I, you imagine this per, poor woman. She wasn't meant to to fellowship was the word with other people. She was to cut herself off from everybody else. So she's totally on her own with a child. She doesn't even have, you know, believers in the group around her. Soon enough, Zion Full Salvation Ministry followers were instructed to stop consuming television, radio and newspapers and to read only the Bible. Violet herself kept a secret television hidden in a specially built cabinet that only her pillars knew existed. David points out how magical it must have been to followers that she had such knowledge of goings-on in the evil outside world. Violet also implemented a phone call system. Call three times, let the phone ring two times the first two calls and hang up, then the receiver should answer on the third call. Apparently this was for protection, and it ensured members were only speaking with other members and not answering calls from outsiders. Members were also not to say anything on answering the phone, so as not to be trapped into speaking with outsiders. David recounts a heartbreaking story at the start of his book about answering the phone to his mother's familiar voice and listening for a while before slowly hanging up on her. David writes about not telling his wife who was on the phone, quote, I don't want her to know how evil I am becoming, so righteous serving Pastor Pryor. Yet she knows and suffers too. We communicate our thoughts in silence. Similar to the Exclusive Brethren and a few of the other groups we've looked at, Violet Pryor told her followers that God wanted them to be in the world but not of the world. If they sent their children to school, they weren't to socialise with the other children, and later this became homeschooling only. As David mentioned, Violet's instruction became that you weren't to fellowship with anyone outside of the group. I asked him what this meant in the context of the Zion Full Salvation Ministry. I mean, we didn't have rules like the exclusive brethren, you know, that you, you can't sit down and eat with somebody. But it was pretty much like that. And, uh, you know, I remember where we lived in Crow's Nest, for example, um, uh, the neighbour uh, couple were well into their 80s. And uh, he had dementia and he was in a wheelchair. And uh, he'd got out in his wheelchair and, uh, and, and gone off. And he was down the bottom of the yard calling out and no one was around. And I went out and wheeled him back. But I'm feeling guilty about, you know, walking 50 metres or something to, to take an old man back to, see, back to his wife. Those in the Zion Full Salvation Ministry were waiting for the end times, when they knew they were the only ones who would be saved. Some members had sold bigger homes and downsized, giving the proceeds over to Violet. Some had given their life savings and some hefty inheritances. There was money in the bank, but even David as a pillar was expected to survive on very little. But the, but the silly thing is that I was aware of how much money was in the bank. I mean, she would have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in savings accounts. You know, the typical thing that old people tend to do you know, for safety. So, uh, and, and, and yet I, I was so afraid while she was alive that I didn't challenge her. And I didn't, I mean, I did actually challenge her. From time to time, I would. And I said things that if she really was who she claimed to be, I probably would have been struck dead if 
God was an ogre, I would yell at her and say, look, you know, it's, it's what you're doing to these people is cruel. And, uh, you know, and then, but, but she had this incredible ability. And if she had other people around, she, she'd gather them around and their job was to side with her no matter what had happened. And, and so then she would be trouncing you for what you'd done and how ashamed you should be. And then the other people would be doing the same thing. And you'd, you'd end up, it was like um, emotional, psychological torture. Violet started a handyman business to bring in more funds, while she used other people's donations to purchase her dream home overlooking the ocean in Palm Beach, which is the northern beaches region of Sydney where the soap opera Home and Away is shot, for those who'd like a visual. Her handyman fitted deadlocks on the doors and grills on the windows, while Violet also purchased a Holden Statesman, which David would often have to chauffeur. That's an Australian luxury car of the period, in case you're unfamiliar. Violet told her followers that she was now in a period of exile, but if they hoped that this would bring them any relief from their restrictions, they would be wrong. She was keeping a file on each of them and expected letters detailing their every life decision and indiscretion constantly. David was on high alert around the clock. All the time, all the time. And in, in the middle of the night, if the phone rang at, you know, two or three in the morning, um, and Meg used to, my wife used to get out of the bed and go into, get in with the kids so I can talk on the phone. Or I would... Um, I would go out and have a long lead on the phone because, of course, we, as I say, we didn't have mobiles. And I'd, I'd walk out to the lounge room and, and then talk to her. And, she, you know, she could be, um, she might be just reading mail because in, it, at that time everybody communicated with her in letters and they felt obligated to tell her everything. So, you know, they're telling on each other. They're confessing things that they think they've done wrong and seeking forgiveness and, uh, you know, it, it, it was just absurd. If, um, if people didn't write, um, she would be sending me and one or two of the other um, elders in the group to go and remonstrate with them. You know, why haven't you communicated? Don't you, you know, um, don't you realise the devil's out to get you? And I mean, look, it, 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 talking about it now, because I haven't talked about it in these terms for a long time, um, you know, I think to myself, goodness gracious, I must have been crazy. Why, why on earth wasn't I taking, uh, you know, heroin or something? Because I could have made more sense. <laughs> Though followers were barely surviving on their lower than minimum wage stipends, they were still expected to tithe money to Violet in envelopes with their names and find ways to buy her lavish gifts for special occasions, like the anniversary of her stigmata. David's wife Margaret writes of a couple who were married for 50 years, selling off the wife's engagement ring to buy Violet a present. Violet's grip over her followers increased over time, and their visits to family, which were formerly few and far between, became non-existent. By the end of 1980, David was estranged from his parents, sister and brother. A few of Violet's very close followers had abandoned ship, and she threatened David with what would happen to him if he followed suit. I mean, she used to threaten that she'd kill me if I if I ever left the ministry. She'd kill me, and but she'd kill my wife and children first, and uh, I would see them die in agonising deaths before my eyes, and then she'd kill me. When David's father was hospitalised with a heart attack, 
his brother John had trouble reaching David on the phone, though after calling from an unknown office number, he finally managed to convey the information to the flat female voice on the other end of the line. He also stopped by and left a note on the fridge, much to David's ire at the time. Uh, I wasn't able to contact Violet to get permission to go and see my father, who was very, very ill in hospital and um, only you know, weeks or months off dying. And, uh, and so I packed my wife and the kids in the car and went up to the hospital in Gosford to see him. And the whole time I was filled with this guilt and fear that, you know, she would know. And, you know, I'd be in so much trouble, but I, at that point, wasn't going to let anything stop me. David was able to attend the funeral when his father passed away in April 1985. He wrote in his book, Dad's death changes me. I realise my children were never given the opportunity to know the wonderful old man who loved them all. In the late 80s, a former Zion Full Salvation Ministry member, along with one of Violet's longest-standing followers who'd also left, went to the media and the police. In 1989, a current affair started knocking on David's door and at Violet's place in Palm Beach. For eight years, David had been visiting Palm Beach frequently to look after Violet's needs, but hadn't set eyes on her. She'd remain in her bedroom and lecture him through the slatted door for hours at a time. So when the police raided her property, it was the first time he'd seen her in a very long time. To his eyes, she'd aged a lot, and this much more frail woman was soon charged with obtaining money by deception. The story adorned the front page of local newspaper The Manly Daily, which said of Violet, It is believed she has fleeced her flock of several million dollars. The case was dismissed when Violet's barrister argued that there's no proving either way when someone claims to be God, so therefore there could be no proof of deception. David had some thoughts about the extent to which Violet really believed it herself. I think that she didn't like the fact that she was a woman in a world which um, really treated women as second-class citizens. So she always, and, and that's wrong. Okay, it's always been wrong. But um, so I think that she learned to do all kinds of things uh, to, to, you know, achieve uh, things for herself that she wanted. And when she got into this, this, this sort of spiritual area and, and, and people were claiming that she had these gifts, I think she got to the stage where she, she really believed who she claimed to be, she must have had doubts unless she was completely mad. Um, but, I mean, my wife challenged her once, actually. Um, Violet used to ring and she'd say, do you believe, um, you know, that, that I am God? And, and most people would say, oh, of course, oh, yes, absolutely, you know, with all my heart. <laughs> and... Meg once said to her no, and um, 
and I didn't know this because Meg only told me, you know, after she died. Uh, and Violet's response to her was, well, I have to continue on the path that I've set. It was a weird thing to say. And Meg believes that she knew that, you know, it was a load of crap. But um, she was way too deep in. The court case and the media coverage sent Violet's paranoia to new heights and didn't help with the demise of her health. She began looking at property in the Southern Highlands, a scenic area of New South Wales an hour and a half drive from Sydney, with charming towns and picturesque bushwalks, with views from the Great Dividing Range of Mountains. Uh, when the A Current Affair TV program went out, exposing her and, and people who'd left, um, you know, telling stories about her and so on, um, she became a very, very frightened and paranoid woman. Um, and so we, we used to take her away from the house that she lived in in, in, uh, in Palm Beach and, and take her somewhere. And she, she, would, she wouldn't use her car, which at the time was a um, um, top-of-the-line Holden Statesman uh, with very, very low kilometres on it. I think it had about 30-something thousand on it. Um, she would rent a car and it would be a Ford Fairlane, which in those days was, you know, top of the line again. And that car would be rented for weeks and weeks on end and sometimes parked in the garage and never went anywhere. Um, so the amount of money that was paid out for her was just phenomenal. And, um, you know, and, and you had people like my own family who, I mean, she used to give us money every now and then to pay for bills and so on. And so, you know, your, your dependency on her increased. But there were people who were driving rusty old vehicles, going out and working for her in the handyman business, you know, getting secondhand tyres for their car because they couldn't afford new ones. Following the death of his father, David resolved to begin phoning his mother regularly without telling Violet. A few years later, his mother too passed away. David writes in his book, Mum's passing is the final nail. I realise now how my past decisions cost me so dearly. After withstanding the initial pressure from Violet, David eventually handed over his one-third inheritance from his mother to her. On the 14th of November, 1991, when he had been unable to reach Violet by phone for many hours, David and another of her closest confidants headed to the Palm Beach house, made their way inside, and found her deceased body lying peacefully in her bed. David's brother John told the ABC's Compass program, When Violet died, I rejoiced. I know that when anybody dies, one should feel some sort of sympathy for them. I felt no sympathy for her at all. I mean, how can you feel sympathy for a psychopath who's taken over your brother, someone you love, and threatened to kill him on various occasions, and duped a whole group of people, taken their money, taken their lives, taken everything from them? 
Upon Violet's death, the leadership of the Zion Full Salvation Ministry was in the hands of David and one other man who was her last remaining pillar. The others were long gone. She didn't leave much in the way of instructions, aside from that the group was to go to the property they had purchased in the Southern Highlands and live together there. And I think that it it had an added benefit that once she was gone, um, people started to have a life um, to regain their independence to a degree because um, there was no way I was going to control people's lives the way she did. I I wasn't interested in that. Um, And I don't think the other fellow was interested in it either to that degree. Um, And, you know, so, you know, our children, for example, got to learn to ride horses and um, exhibit cattle in the, in the Sydney show. And we, we attracted some people to join us who were farm people who were able to train uh, some of our folk in what we were doing. So, you know, it, it changed things a lot. The community started a number of businesses, continuing the handyman service called OHS, which stood for both our handyman service and our Holy Spirit. They also created a cafe called Oh How Sweet, using the OHS initials again, and bought a vintage stagecoach to hire out for events. There were financial challenges in running these businesses, but on a social level they were all bringing the members into closer contact with the local population, and without Violet there any longer to curtail their interactions. And then we started to have public services in the old church that we'd bought in Bowral, which was the old Catholic church, and these were always public, so anybody could come. And and it was a, I suppose in a sense it was, it was it was journeying back to a sense of reality, um, that that had been lost for so many years. So possibly that had prepared people so that by the time we we finally, you know, I, w- I was able to go through through things bit by bit, and some and and put pieces together that they would have known this part, but they didn't know that part. And when it, when it was all put together as a jigsaw, it, it, it looked an absolute mess. <laughs> I describe it in the book as um, trying to deal with the, 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 what, if you looked at an apple, if, if the apple had rotted from the outside, that, I don't think that happens. But I dealt with all the stuff on the outside that was rotten, and then I had to get to the core and the call was that the beliefs were totally wrong, that this, this woman wasn't at all who she claimed to be, and she was a total fraud, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, people had been completely deceived. When we broke the stories to the whole congregation, which is quite unusual, we, we gathered them together, and I was the senior pastor at the time. This was in 1996. And I basically went through everything that I'd, I'd researched and told them in, in no uncertain time terms that I believed that was a, a load of rubbish. We'd all been deceived, you know. Um, she'd made off with all this money. She was dead. We needed to renounce her. I wasn't sure what would happen. But the, the weirdest thing was that everybody agreed with me. In 1996, when he closed down the Zion Full Salvation Ministry for good, David Ayliff was 42 years old. He hadn't worked a regular job since his early 20s. Suddenly you had people who 
realise for the first time just how poor they were. Um, and we, we tried to then sell everything up and distribute monies to everybody, but we had incurred debts along the way um, and there was a downturn in the market so that we had bought, a, you know, top money because <laughs> um, we, we, we bought things because God said we had to buy them. <laughs> so you didn't do uh, due diligence. Um, and basically, at the end of the day, there was nothing left. So that that was really awful. Um, and uh, And some of us, you know, we were blamed for that when it was really more to do with how Violet had put things together. We actually hired an accounting firm to do it for us, and that cost money. But we realised, had we done it just ourselves, um, you know, that it, it, it could never have worked because of uh, the doubts and mistrust. David mentioned he felt some blame, and I wondered if, for some followers, it was difficult to reconcile his being Violet's right-hand man for so long even though he eventually realised the deception and dismantled the cult? Oh, yes. I, you know, I, I don't think... Um, I've always suspected that, um, and, and I wouldn't blame anybody. Um, I, I, I look back and often think, you know, if only I'd been able to call it out, you know, many, many years before. Um, but, you know, I hadn't, and... Uh, um, so, you know, it, it, you, you can't go back. Um, you, you move forward. By the time Violet died, David had been involved with her for 16 years. For some of the younger members, it had been their entire lives. Look, I know some of the younger people who were born, either born into it or um, were very young when their parents joined the group, um, struggled with their sense of um, identity, who they are, um, self-esteem, all those sorts of things. But yeah, I mean, there, there was one a couple who actually, who were a bit older than my wife and I, um, suicided um, at one point, um, a joint suicide, and that was terrible for their children. Um, yeah, the, the, these groups don't, really prepare you for the best and the worst of life because they are so exclusive. Um, and again, that's the reason why I think that, that it's dangerous. And, and I, I see that in so many different groups. There's nothing like, like liberty of thought, freedom to, to be who you are, freedom to think, um, and vast amounts of education. <laughs> David had mentioned to me earlier why he felt that the Zion Full Salvation Ministry was dangerous in the way that it operated. And I'll let you hear what he had to say about that. I call this group a dangerous cult. Um, the reason I say that is it's not dangerous in the sense of violent or uh, bearing guns or anything like that. But I believe any group that literally takes over the minds of followers and I don't care whether it's a religious group or a political group or an ideology or whatever, I, I think that's extremely dangerous. And, um, and I have come to see how widespread that is in so many different areas. But that, that, that is dangerous. 
it's dangerous in the sense that it cripples the potential of that human being to be the best person they can. And if I give you an example, um, one of the people in that group was a man, a young man called Jonathan. Um, he was 10 years younger than me. Um, so when I met him, he was a young teenager. And uh, <clears throat> Jonathan was a brilliant man. Um, I mean, he, he was um, very intelligent. He was, uh, um, you know, he taught himself to play classical music on the piano. Um, yeah, he was, he was almost a savant in the, in the traditional sense of that word. But because he was within this group and his mother was, you know, very close to Violet and so on, um, his, his life had to be mapped out according to the expectations of this group. So when he uh, finished school, which was early, and he wanted to go on to study and, you know, become an architect or, or whatever, you know, he, he could have done anything. Um, he ended up being um, a handyman in the business that Violet started basically to keep control of the men and, and enable them to still earn money but have more control over them um, rather than them working for different employers. Um, and I always felt, you know, that was really sad. Jonathan went on to study and some years later, um, I had sort of lost contact with him, but I discovered from his niece that he was actually a gay man, which uh, we had suspected. Um, being gay, he, he could never have been um, himself in Zion Full Salvation Ministry because that, you know, obviously meant he was filled with demons and, uh, uh, you know, it was just never to be accepted. Um, and, and Jonathan died a few years ago. Um, he'd, he'd done some wonderful paintings. He'd, he lived in Surrey Hills in Sydney. He had some uh, wonderful friends, um, all part of the LGBTIQ community. Um, but his life had been crippled by this belief. Now, he's only one, but there are, there are other examples that I could give you. And look, people have, have gone on and they've made, made good from their lives, but uh, I, I just, <clears throat> I believe any group that controls you or any person who controls you to, to the point where you cannot be yourself and you cannot develop the skills and talents that you have naturally, um, uh, you know, it, it is, is terribly dangerous. Had I not gone in that direction, I don't know what I would have done with my journalism. But, I, you know, I've always been a writer and I've always tended to have, you know, confidence in my abilities to, to talk to people and, you know, do what you need to do. But I can remember that I would I, – I, there were times when I was suicidal in the group because I, um, I just was so miserable um, with the way life was with Violet. And um, – I can remember thinking to myself, well, look, what, what if I break out of this, you know, take my family with me and, and I'll start again. And I would be crippled in my thinking because I would think to myself, well, what are you going to do? And, and then I'd think, well, I could go back to, you know, Cumberland newspapers where I used to work um, um, in Parramatta. And uh, I could go in and see the editor who's still there at, at that time was still there. Um, but, if I imagined myself walking into the office of that man who I'd known and, you know, 
as, as a young journalist, you'd, you'd drink with all the your bosses and so on, you know. Um, I, I, I would be crippled in my thinking. I would think, I, I, I'll get in there and I won't be able to open my mouth. I won't be able to speak. David told me a bit about the work he's doing nowadays. He spent some time interrogating his beliefs after initially gaining a position with an evangelical organisation as his first paid job after the Zion Full Salvation Ministry. I'm still working as a disability support worker. That's a great way for um, getting rid of um, uh, (laughs) airy-fairy beliefs because when you start to see what life is really like for people who are born with um, disabilities and um, and so on. You know, it, can, it changes you. Um, I'm also doing weddings and occasional funerals. Um, but a few months ago, I started a charity called Humanity in Need, Rainbow Refugees, because I came to hear of the terrible plight of, of uh, queer folk in Africa. Now, these are folk who, who have been impacted terribly by um, what we might, what I might term the evangelical cult, um, people going throughout Africa preaching the evils of um, LGBTIQ people, um, and and encouraging communities, even church communities, to throw these people out, cast them out. There's a link in the show notes to this organisation if you're interested in the work they're doing. David has been involved with cult information and family support in Australia for a number of years now and tries to help others who've been in similar situations. He told me the advice he gives to those who are worried about a friend or family member who seems to be involved with a high-demand group. I think if possible, you always try and keep the door open. Um, You always try and, you know, if, if it's got to the point where there's no common ground, at least always um, let people know that you'll, you'll be there for them if they ever need somebody. Um, <clears throat> because that's one of the hardest things when all ties have been cut and you feel that you, you've got nowhere to go. Um, so I, I, I think that's really important. The other thing is you ha- it, it's a really hard um, path to walk because you can't denounce what the people believe. It's almost like, um, you know, parents with a teenage son or daughter who bring home a, um, you know, boyfriend or girlfriend who uh, the parents don't like. (laughs) You know, if you express your dislike for that person and keep pointing out their faults while your son or daughter is besotted with them, you only estrange the son or daughter. So you've got to be wise um, and, and and, and try and, you know, hope and pray that they will come to the realisation that, um, that you have. Um, and if they don't, then you've, you've still got to try and work on the relationship. Uh, but, but they're the sort of things that I say. And, and the other thing is to try and just gently, um, when somebody makes a statement 
that can't be verified or can't be um, uh, validated, you gently point out that, well, you know, I, I, I can't accept that because, you know, I, I you know, for example, if somebody's talking about uh, conspiracy theories to do with COVID or, or vaccines or something like that, then, you know, I would say, um, well, you know, I'm, I'm not a doctor, uh, but if, I'm, if I've got cancer, I will go to a doctor. Um, and I will, I, I will f find a good doctor and trust the medical profession. Um, but then you know, there's no point in getting into fights and arguments over it because that's not helpful. I think one of the hardest things is to respond. And I think I'm only learning this now because there are things that I read, you know, from, from people about different issues that I'm supporting. And I can become very angry because of injustice. But I realise... You know, if I can possibly respond with love, but still stand my ground, I've got a better chance of um, of building a bridge than if I just tell the person they're you know they're an idiot and <laughs> you know wake up to themselves. David told me that he's not anti-religion today, though he has a number of atheist friends who feel differently. Today, I thought his feelings on that subject would be a good place to finish up. I do wish that people would focus more on on being good humanitarians as well as Christians or Isla, Islamic folk or whatever, um, caring for others. You know, uh, a, a, a world where where uh, reciprocity is um, is the thing that we we live by. You know, caring for others. David Aliff is writing a new book called Shaming God, How Insiders Do It Best. And you can find out more details at his website, davidaliff.com. I'll let him remind you of the details of his book that's been a key source for much of this episode and is a riveting read that I do recommend. The book that I wrote with my brother is My Brother's Eyes. And uh, <clears throat> we, we published it in 2010. It was published by John Garrett Publishing. But now I've republished it as an audio book. Um, my brother and I recorded it together and it will be available on, it's on, on Google Play and Scribed and a few places now. It will be on Audible and all the different outlets. Um, and it, we were very lucky to have endorsements by um, Bryce Courtney, <laughs> um, uh, a, a Christian writer, uh, Philip Yancey, um, and uh, other leading writers and others. So, you know, we've, we're pretty privileged to have that. But um, yes, it'll be available on my website as well. In case you missed my news last episode, I've recently signed a book contract and will be spending the next year or so writing about a lot of the things I think about while making this project. Over these four seasons, I've learned so much from those who've shared their stories and the experts whose work I follow. I'm both excited and a little terrified of the work in front of me, and I can't wait to bring you more news as I go. 
If you'd like to stay in the loop, best thing to do is sign up to the LTAS e-newsletter via the website at ltaspod.com. The other news is that LTAS composer Joe Gould is currently working on a soundtrack album to collect his work into selected full-length tracks that make for a rich listening experience. I can't wait to bring you more news on that one too. You can access ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon, patreon.com slash ltaspod, or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. In between seasons, my Patreon supporters will be helping me write the book this year, and I'm hugely grateful to them. Even a dollar a month helps. I don't ever want to make episodes of the podcast exclusive, as I believe the stories need to be heard as far and wide as possible. But supporters do get early release and ad-free episodes, updates from me, and some other fun perks in the mail. I'd also love it if you'd drop a quick rating on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, and share an episode with friends if you found it valuable. This episode of Let's Talk About Sects was researched and written by me, Sarah Steele. Music was by Joe Gould. Thanks to Corey Green of Transducer Audio for editing. A very special thanks to David Aliff for sharing his story with me. Information sources are listed on the episode page at ltaspod.com. Thanks again to Audio Technica, presenting partner for Season 4 of Let's Talk About Sects. If you're in the market for some top-quality audio equipment, be sure to head to audio-technica.com.au to check out their stuff. Their range of earphones and headphones is quite ridiculous, from true wireless to noise cancelling to professional studio, and they're known for some of the best sound around. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via cifs.org.au and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via icsahome.com If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at iasp.info Thanks for joining me and hope to catch you again next episode. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.